This podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation News, the publication for professionals working in the UK and Ireland's medical device industry. Subscribe now at medtechnews.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk Podcast, the show that covers the latest news and issues across life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News. On this episode, I'm joined by Doug Larson, CEO of Dockler. In partnership with Northampton General Hospital NHS Trust, Dockler trial responsive home monitoring services for patients recovering from COVID-19 with high-risk conditions. On this episode, we've discussed the concept of virtual warts, whether COVID-19 has been a catalyst for this kind of technological adoption, and what will make remote patient monitoring stick. If you can just basically start off by telling us about Doppler and the, and the remote patient monitoring service that it offers. Uh... Absolutely, and, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's very good to be here, Ian. Um, so my name is Doug Larson. I'm uh, one of two founders uh, of, of Doppler. Uh, we are a remote patient monitoring health tech and service provider. We do uh, three things for our clients. We start always start off with kind of a clinical pathway we want to support with remote patient monitoring. And then we, we help them set up all the operating procedures. We draft all the leaflets. We help them define, because often there's a give and take between the art of the possible and what the NHS wants to achieve. Uh, then secondly, we bring in all of the devices and the software to support the remote patient monitoring program. And we configure our own software so that it supports the clinical pathway. And then thirdly, and here we differ quite a lot from competition, we do all of the logistics, the customer service and everything else. And what kind of what we what we like to say that we sell to the to the NHS is compliant patients. So we're not plugging a certain device. We use the devices dependent on the clinical pathway and, and you know what they intend to support. Uh, we're not plugging a, a particular pathway. Our software can be configured in many different ways. And if anything goes wrong with the monitoring, if the cat eats the cord of the you know of the Wi-Fi or anything else, we take responsibility of that. And that goes down to our kind of our, our package of remote patient monitoring is actually a physical box. And that box contains a pre-configured mobile phone, a leaflet, all the relevant devices. And everything that NHS has to do is to give the box to the patient and kind of give them context, consent the patient. And then they log into the, uh, to, to our dashboard, which is accessed via a web, web browser. And then they can see uh, the patients that are flagging up and they have to do uh, some medical intervention. So that's how the service works today. Okay, a lot of what I've read about you, I mean, the, the, the term virtual wards actually comes up quite a bit. Um, I, I wonder if you can explain a little bit more about that, because is it a case of, um, say, like in a hospital, you, you have uh, a certain amount of healthcare professionals responsible for one ward, but is it a case in virtual wards that one healthcare professional might be responsible for one group and another for another group and so on? Can you just give us a bit of insight as to how that works? I think, I mean, there's probably as many, it's a very good question, there's probably as many definition of virtual wards as there are installations of virtual wards. So I think it can be anything from your community service, um, you know, having a, a set of processes and technology to wrap around and give care in, in a patient's home, 
to a very high-tech early discharge of, for instance, a COVID-19 patient, where you take a patient, you discharge them earlier, and you monitor them in real time, uh, and you give alerts. So it's really, it's really depending on the installation, and I think you're raising an important topic because the kind of the coordination between different healthcare providers and different NHS trusts is probably one of the most challenging parts when launching uh, a remote patient monitoring solution. Because well, you know, normally what happens when, a, when, when somebody leaves a hospital is that that patient also perhaps goes into the community and the community services take charge, but then there's a relationship with the GP. And yeah, the, the coordination can become quite tricky, to be honest. Okay, I mean, I think given that you touched upon COVID and you know, we, talk, we talked about coordination and all that, but the, the remote patient monitoring broadly, has COVID-19 been its big breakthrough or do you think other things might need to change for the concept of remote patient monitoring to be here to stay? I think in terms of uh, changing attitude towards technology and changing behaviour, it's absolutely been, uh, you know, almost like a catch-up effect. And I think that's probably the single most difficult part. Um, so if you go back 18 months ago, you know, you've had a lot of clinicians that didn't know about the concept whatsoever. They might be very skeptical. And you've had a lot of patients that, you know, wouldn't expect to be treated in the home whatsoever. And what we've seen, especially from the COVID patients, is that they've been so overwhelmingly positive about the experience. And I don't see that going away. Uh, I don't see this this going away in any sense. And I think that would be the single biggest driver for why I think it will accelerate uh, in the NHS and in other healthcare systems during the next few years. With that said, um, there is still a lot of things that needs to happen in terms of policy. So how is the remuneration going to uh, work? Uh, I mean, conceivably, an acute hospital could discharge a patient earlier today, take a cost for remote patient monitoring, and actually lose income because the uh, reimbur- reimbursement codes, etc., for remote patient monitoring isn't as much as, as much sure as it would be if they would provide care in the acute hospital. So. The behavioral changes are there. The policy changes needs needs to be there as well. And then I would say uh, the technology is just getting better and better. A lot of people say that you know actually the technology has been around for years, but that's not that's not true. If you if you think about it, like the first Apple Watch, which had a simple heart rate sensor, which didn't work very well on uh, on, on people with uh, dark skin tones, came out 2015. So that was only that was only five years ago. So the technology is still maturing. The sensors are getting better. Uh, Machine learning is getting better. Connectivity is getting better. So I think evolvement will be dependent on those three axes. This is working together with each other. And that will also generate sufficient scale for remote patient monitoring to take off. Because today, if an hospital launches a remote patient monitoring program with, let's say, 100, 100 patients, which is a decent sized program, then uh, it will be very difficult to uh, get some return on investment on that because the setup, your cost, etc., just won't won't fare well against uh, the established model of care, which is treating patients in the hospital. I think you've actually touched upon an issue I'd like to come on to myself, which is uh, patient buy-in yeah. and you know the buy-in of healthcare professionals. Because I think you've actually touched upon the. Uh, 
the technology becoming much more advanced even in such a short space of time for, for you know you refer to 2015 and the apple watch there but i'm i'm conscious that technology isn't the be all and end all when it when it comes to patient buying because i imagine there's there's certain degrees of um of, of skepticism from from patients in particular about you know is, is what i provide safe can this really can this really work because it, you know it i think it's the old concept of or the old saying rather of trying to teach an old dog new tricks i mean it can be hard to get you know others to adopt new ways of thinking and new technologies Absolutely, and I think the, the first level of skepticism that you meet when you when you try to sell a service like ours is will come from clinicians, uh, and that uh, barrier was broken down by COVID nineteen because you had to get people out of the hospital. So everyone, or a lot of clinicians, has tested it now, and I think the reason reason why it's, it will be sticky now actually is driven by the patients. So all patients are obviously consented before they go on to remote patient monitoring, and uh, We've had patients who have literally written into you know, the local newspaper about how happy they've been on being to be able to look after in the hospital, especially with COVID, which is something that can go south fairly, fairly quickly. They have been readmitted and then refused to go back uh, at home without being, uh, being looked after by, by, by the technology we're providing. And that's not just because we, we feel we're doing a good job, it's just uh, when you're poorly, when you're a comorbid, uh, you know, patient, uh, you want to be at home, but you also want to feel safe. And if you can get the patients to feel safe, I feel that's really where we will see the, the biggest driver is that beyond all reasonable doubt, patients want this. And uh, if you have been in the hospital yourself, I mean, I've had a few surgeries. It's, it's not hard to imagine that if you are at the hospital and you can feel safe, but be in the home instead. Uh, for certain uh, clinical pathways, it's I, you know it's a no-brainer. So I, I don't think I don't think particularly the patient uh, reluctiveness will be the problem. There is a question of kind of dig- digital uh, inclusiveness, and that you have a lot of patients that are you know 80, they've never used a, a laptop, a computer, a smartphone, and you need to design a system that's good for them as well. Uh, and with these patients, I mean, we've, we've handled patients that can't read and write, that are, you know, uh, well into their 80s, they can't read and write. And we literally have to tell them everything. We have to spend a lot of time with these patients uh, on, with, with the service level. So I think, I think the patients in general, with some exceptions, obviously, are very keen on remote patient monitoring. But you have to design a service and a product that works for everyone not just the ones that are smartphone savvy and that can operate it uh, themselves. I mean, you, you've addressed, um, uh, you know, a, a service that works for everybody, but also for that, you, you'd need the infrastructure in place, you know, in order to provide a good quality service in the first place. Um, how much um, how much do you rely on basically the powers that be, you know, government basically to provide you know, the relevant infrastructure for you to go out and provide the service. Do you think there's enough there already or do you think there, there needs to be further policy developments? I mean, so far, we haven't been, you know, we haven't done anything in the, in the Scottish islands or anything like that. But when it comes to connectivity at the moment, uh, what we do in, in, in the mobile phones we provide, we have a pre-configured SIM card in every phone. 
And to date, it's never been a problem uh, relaying vital signs data back to, to the NHS. Uh, if, if the patient has uh, a Wi-Fi, we normally hook up them on, on the Wi-Fi, but otherwise we use the pre-configured SIM card uh, and it works. It's, in some cases, you don't get video if, you know, if they're very rural or if, you know, if they live in a basement or something like that, you might have a problem with video. But uh, out of, uh, you know, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of patients and thousands of thousands of patient days, we've so far not have had a problem with connectivity. And this is going to get a lot better with 5G in the next, you know, we'll see when 5G rolls out of the UK, but it's getting better and better. Yeah, you've also mentioned um, patient satisfaction. I think we've actually touched upon this a little bit already in terms of, you know, they want, they're, they're going to make this stick basically with remote patient monitoring. But I'd like to ask about patient compliance in the first place because how do you go about measuring that remotely? So how, how we today measure uh, patient compliance is has the patient uh, transmitted data that day? And in terms of if, if we use, because uh, there, there are two types of uh, remote patient monitoring. There's intermittent monitoring, where the patient is asked to, let's say, uh, give their, uh, their, their saturation and their blood pressure three times daily. And there's continuous monitoring. And in, the times, in, in, in terms of intermittent monitoring, if they've submitted data on, on, on you know, how they're supposed to, then we say you know, the patient is compliant. It becomes a little bit trickier when it comes when you're, when you're talking about continuous monitoring, because sometimes you do have data loss. If the patient wears, you know, walks away with the sensor from the transmitting device, etc. Uh, but again, uh, if we get data the majority of, of, of that day, which we normally do, we also tick the, the patient as compliant. I think. I think uh, the reason why uh, our, we have very high compliance, and we have, we say, I think we say 95% on the website. We're currently at 98%, and I don't want to even write that because I, I wonder if it's sustainable in the long term. But what we do is that we a design very simple solutions, and 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 then uh, secondly, we provide everything, and it's our responsibility, not the NHS, not the customer, for them to be compliant. And three, we simply call the patients if they're not compliant. Um, and uh, I think you need a combination of those those three uh, factors for yeah to, to be able to have very very compliant patients. And again, I think a reason a reason why we're successful is that we are selling this as a service, not so much as a gadget. Because I think it's 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 difficult for let's say an acute thrust or a, a GP practice or a community service to kind of man and operate, uh, you know, customer service and logistics, etc. It, it's 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 a little bit simpler as a as, as a as a private company. Okay, I'll come on to the uh, service and gadget access uh, a little bit later on, but I was I was wondering um, the uh, the motives behind moving into COPD monitoring following COVID. I mean, is this because it's another respiratory condition and it's easier to transfer skills or tech learn from virtual COVID care? Or is it a case of, you know, you have this technology already and it's just a basically a broad strategy of, of branching out? Yeah, no, I think we, we currently do uh, a lot of different types of, of patients. We do heart patients, we do respiratory patients, um, and, and, and we're looking a lot at type diabetes and hypertensive patients. But I think what, what you'll probably see is that you've had a lot of remote patient monitoring solutions being launched in the respiratory uh, wards or the, in, in hospitals. And that those clinicians at the moment will, you know, will be advocates because they've seen the benefits firsthand. 
So now, uh, literally, we, you know, we're looking at peak flow meters for asthma patients. Uh, we're looking at uh, pneumonia patients. Uh, we're doing um, two types of respiratory patients in, in different trusts. We're doing uh, kind of early discharge CPD patients, which uh, has a high risk of being readmitted or uh, deteriorating. And we're also doing chronic care management for CPD patients, meaning that we just measure them you know, twice twice every week and then we and, and then the NHS clinicians look look after them and see are they about to deteriorate and then they intervene earlier to avoid an admittance. So I think I think you will see from COVID uh, that a lot of respiratory consultants uh, will be uh, they'll be used and confident using technology. Okay. I mean I'm gonna come back to the technology bit now if that's okay because Procurement has been a big issue throughout the pandemic. Yeah, when when it's come to um, especially PPE earlier on, but obviously you're you're in a slightly different field because of you know the technology you use. But you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be it'd be remiss of me not to ask the question in terms of how you found the procurement process during such a, a heightened time. Because how does the process work when it comes to adopting technologies that Docker uses, so it allows your program to take place? Well. Oh, um... I mean, first of all, if you look at the, kind of the deal values, I've only seen the headlines of the PPE deals that were made, and they're quite—they sound quite audacious. We're not looking at the same deal values. And then, um, secondly, we were lucky enough to be in a—we had a publicly procured contract when we went into the to the to the pandemic, which which we could which we could use. And then, thirdly, uh, NHSX, the, the digital arm of uh, NHS, were very, very quick on setting up uh, a framework on uh, on Spark, Spark technology framework, where they procured a number of installations very, very quickly. So I think, all in all, uh, it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been like the PPE debacle, putting it mildly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, fa- it's fascinating to actually ask different people this this question when they work, when they supply different products and services to the NHS, just to see, you know, if there's lessons that can be learned that are already being adopted. But I think that's for that's probably for another another episode that I've got uh, lined up uh, in the future. But um, I've got one final point, to, or basically one final question. It's pretty open ended, really. But it's how you can how can you further develop the service that you're offering right now? Have you got any? You know, future plans in the pipeline that we don't already know about. Give us a bit more insight as to what the future looks like for Dockler. Thank you for that question. And, and I think we're working along three axes. Uh, one is to help, uh, you know, to, to, to help the industry uh, to build the evidence base. So we're doing a very large, perhaps one of the bigger remote patient monitoring studies in the UK, uh, where we look uh, to see if we can use passive advanced multi-parameter sensors to anticipate clinical deterioration. And we want to invest more in research and we want to invest more in the research in our current installations. So that's one thing we're doing. And I think that's that will be a necessity to show that we can uh, prove the benefits. Secondly, we're working very hard to integrate our technology with the primary care providers. And we also would like to do the same uh, with, you know, with the secondary care uh, technology system. So for reference, in the primary care, you have players like TPP and EMIS. Uh, and in the second, in secondary care, you have you know, the EPICS and the Cerner of the world, world. And putting it mildly, we would have hoped that these systems would have been uh, a bit easier to integrate with. But for several reasons, uh, both good and bad, it takes a bit of time. 
but we envision a future where uh, you know if, if you're a if you're a consultant in an acute hospital and you use one of the systems i just mentioned you can basically use that system to say okay this patient should go on onboarding and then you know we take over from there um, and they get the data reports and everything in their existing systems so that's going to take a long time but that's where we want to be almost so that like, like these systems are, are keeping apps and and the final thing we're doing um, is that we are extending our service to, to be able to take delegated clinical responsibility so uh, we are currently going through a cqc process so that so that we can do diagnostic services and the reason why we're doing this is that we see when we launch with the trust let's say a trust want to do a, a quick pilot 50 patients or 150 300 patients it's a lot of work for them to get started they have to put on a, a rote of people working to to uh, look at the vital signs even though we're using state of the art and we're only notifying when necessary etc you will need people to look at the vital signs and to direct the patients and, you, and to assess the patient's vital signs together with their symptoms perhaps together with the video call so the final thing we're doing is that we want to provide that very thin layer uh, and uh, basically be directed by uh, our, our, our clients so according to this this protocol, uh, we direct the patient either to uh, their GP or back to A&E or discharging them from the service. So I think in, in summary, uh, to build evidence base, to provide uh, a continuous and, and interoperable service, and finally, to be able to take clinical responsibility. That's kind of like those are the three main strat strategic lines we're working. Well, be sure to keep an eye out for any uh, new updates coming from Doppler in the future but Doug thank you very very much for your time this morning well thank you Ian it's been it's been great speaking to you